I'd like you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the New Testament book of Matthew, and we're going to be in chapter 2, wrapping up this sermon series called The Message of the Manger. And this morning we're going to be looking at this story in the Christmas narrative that happens after Jesus has been born. In our lesson this morning, we're going to see the typical nativity scene. Some of you have nativities at home that maybe you put out around Christmas time, where we see the traditional nativity scene on, on Christmas cards. And, and we're going to see this morning that that, that nativity scene that, that we see in our minds actually is absolutely wrong. There's some points to it, and especially this story, that, that is a little different from, from what we traditionally see, from what we, the Hallmark cards have presented us with. This morning, I'm going to be teaching more than preaching as we look into this story, and, but I do hope that you find some, some amazing histories through our lesson this morning that will give you a deeper understanding of what's happening in and around the time that, that Jesus is born. And this morning we're going to focus on one specific group of characters in our Christmas nativity scene, and that is the characters of the wise men. This morning we're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, in a message that I've titled, The Wise Men and the Lion's Den. Now, I know one of the first questions comes to your mind. You're going to say, okay, Pastor, how are we putting the story of Daniel in the lion's den and the story of three men riding camels through the desert to find a baby Jesus and give him presents? How are we putting them in the same story? How are we putting them in the same sermon? See, that's one of the amazing things that God has done is he has intertwined his history all the way through the Bible to where we can look back and we can see him at almost any point in the Bible. We're going to see that today. So the first question that we're going to look at this morning is, who are the wise men? Unfortunately, the question of who are the wise men is not a very easy to, uh, question to answer if we're only using the biblical New Testament as our reference. Matthew doesn't give us a lot of information, but he gives us enough information to where we can look through secular history at the time and we can look through biblical history and start piecing together and understanding who these men were. Now, before I go much further, I want to put an asterisk on our lesson this morning. Typically, I preach what we refer to as expository sermons, which means that we take, a, uh, we take a, a book of the Bible or a story and we're looking at it verse by verse and seeing exactly we're exploring what it means. Today's more of a, a topical sermon, and some of the content that I'm going to be referring to and some of the lessons is going to come from secular history. So it's not going to all be what we would consider uh, inspired or God-breathed, but it is from reliable sources that we find out exactly who these men were. Mary and Joseph would have known who these men were. What we're going to study today and learn about them is what Matthew would have known about them, is what the apostles would have known about them, is what especially King Herod would have known about them. So let's get started. Who are the wise men? Matthew tells us that the wise men, 
They arrived from the east to give gifts to the child. That's about it. That's all we know from Matthew, is that they came from the east. When we dive into a word study, however, when when we're looking at wise men, we find that wise men is translated out of the Greek word magi. Who's heard that word as, as we've referred to it to the wise men? So some of your translations might actually use it. Magi is a very interesting word. We've translated it as wise men, and it's about the best that we could do Because magi is a word that does not have an equivalent English translation. So that's what we come up with, is wise men. Magi is a word that led from the Greek into our English word magic. We see it synonymous with sorcery. We see it being used in the area of wisdom and astrology and astronomy. And and some some of these... Uh, cultures that are a little bit outside of of our Christian faith and our everyday faith, but magi were certainly wise men. So that leads to the question then, who are the magi? And in order to recognize who they are, we need a little bit of a history lesson in this part of the world at that time. As a matter of fact, we're going to go back about 600 to 700 years before the birth of Jesus. God's people, the Israelites, about 700 years before Jesus was born, they lived in two different nations. They had lived in the the northern area of their land was called Israel. The lower was called Judea. And over the last many centuries, God's people had rebelled against him. And God had punished the nation of Israel, which is the northern territory. And they were taken into exile. They were scattered among the Assyrians. And that left the southern area of, of Judah as is, is a place where God's people were. And although these people had seen what had happened to their northern neighbors, they still failed to repent. They still failed to come back to God. They still worshipped foreign gods as well. And God sent them also into exile, punishing them. It was in 605 B.C. that Judah and, and Jerusalem was overtaken by the Babylonians. The Babylonians and their, their leaders came into Jerusalem, came into this land, took people, and in three waves they would march many of the remaining people in, in the Jewish nation across the desert into Babylon. Their, their culture was really starting to to be destroyed. Their land was destroyed. Jerusalem was left in ruins. And God's people now lived in what's referred to as the diaspora. Diaspora meaning those who are dispersed. They're not in their native land anymore. Once the majority of those who are in this Jewish nation are in Babylon, there were powerful efforts to delete the Jewish culture. Of course, if you can take a people and, 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 and you could put your culture into those people, now you're going to have a little easier time in controlling that group of people. So that's one of the things that started to happen once the Jews were in a different land. Some of the Jews 
that made, it, that made this trip that were exiled. Some of them were actually selected to go to school, learn the culture, become very well versed in the, in the land and of the people who were in the, the Babylon area. Four men specifically named in the Old Testament, many others were as well, but they have their own story in the Old Testament. This is where we get the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had a good friend by the name of Daniel. Daniel is the same Daniel who would later be tossed into a lion's den. Now we're starting to draw connections to the title of our sermon this morning. While the Jews were exiled a ruler, the king in this territory, began, began to have some real terrible dreams. And he had summoned his spiritual advisors, his astronomers, his sorcerers, his magicians to interpret the dream. None of them could interpret the dream. Some of the people who were called to interpret this dream were a group of men called the Magi. It says in Daniel chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, it says, The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to those wise men of Babylon, Whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of uh, royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck and will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Right here is where our story of the wise men begins. The Magi that were called in to help interpret this dream were a, a, a group of, of high-ranking uh, government officials who had high-ranking religious duties as well. They weren't elected. They were, these were, were spiritual advisors to the king. They were very well-educated. They were wise. They were very smart. They, they studied. Education was, was a major part of the tribe of, of the Magi. It was this elite group. They studied the stars. And they would have been involved in, in a variety of ventures that we would look at as something that a very small group or of, of high-end professionals would, would take part in. Uh, architecture, philosophy, science, history, mathematics, languages. These are by far the smartest men in this land at this time. One of the traits that the Magi was associated with was the interpretation of dreams. This was a trait that they were known for. We will see God speak to them through dreams in our New Testament story in the book of Matthew. The Magi are also priests. They're not Jewish priests, but they're priests of the religion of the faith in their land. And there's actually some ties between the Jewish culture and the culture in Babylon that the, that the Magi are a part of, but they are priests of. Jewish culture is what we call monotheistic. There is mono meaning one, theo meaning God, one God that they worship. The Magi also were monotheistic. The Jews had a priestly line in succession. We would see that, that the Jews would have a, a priest and his son could become a priest and it would be passed down. The Magi also had a succession in their priestly order. So there were some similarities between the two. There's a hierarchy of priests. Fathers to sons. 
generation to generation would have this, would have this position of magi. So in this priesthood, what we find in modern day, if we were to look at them as ancestors, they were the priests of a people called the Medes. The Medes are ancestors of the modern day Kurds. Have you heard the term Kurds, the people of the Kurds in the news over the last maybe six months or so? The Kurds relate back to the Medes. The Medes, the priests over this people are the Magi. The wisdom of the Magi also allows them to be leaders in the civil courts. They would be those who were looked on with, with extraordinary wisdom, and, and they would be ones who would, who would determine arguments in the land and the cities. Day-to-day -day operations of the courts would go through the Magi. So here we have this group, this very elite group of people who have deep ties in society. They have deep ties in religion. They have deep ties in the royal households. And remember, Daniel, one of the Jewish exiles who is now in the land, has been trained in the house of the king. And he's under the authority of the king. And he's learned the language of the people in this land. He's learned their culture and he's earned their trust. And now when the king has this dream that he's trying to get interpreted and the king calls these, these wise men in to interpret this dream, he calls these magicians in, people who have a track record of interpreting dreams and they can't, somebody brings up Daniel's name and says there's one of the exiles, one of the Jewish exiles that can interpret this dream. And that's where Daniel comes in. And Daniel does just that. And because of this accomplishment, Daniel is then given the position of the leader of the Magi. It's a position that no Jew had ever held. It's a position that he didn't earn. He didn't earn it through succession. He didn't go through. It wasn't, it wasn't his father who was a magi, and now he is. It's not something that he studied. He actually was given this title. We see in Daniel chapter 5, verse number 29, and then um, uh, it was commanded that Daniel was dressed in purple robes, and a gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. This isn't his kingdom. This isn't his land. And now he is the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And now he is leading this group of magi. Undoubtedly, in his leadership position, Daniel would have taught these other magi about Jewish history, about Hebrew history. These men absorbed learning. Anything that they could study, they studied. You don't become wise overnight. You don't become one of the wise men by kicking around watching YouTube all day. You're studying things, and that's what they did. We know that the Persian Empire eventually conquered Babylon, and King Darius gave the Jewish exiles permission to go back to Judah after 70 years in captivity. But in all honesty, not many of those who were exiled actually returned. 
after 70 years and a generation that has come, died, a new generation has come into the land, many of the Jewish people now called this their home, this land that they were taken to. Life expectancy in this day and age is about 40 years, 45 if you can make it that long. So you're not going to have many people that are going to return that actually left. Some, not a lot. So during the 70 years that the Jews are in exile in Babylon and the Persian Empire, some of the Jewish people that were now living amongst another group of people have deep influence. They're telling their stories. They are teaching people what they have grown up knowing in their faith, which would be to us, our Old Testament. Some of the Old Testament hasn't even been written at this point. Certainly they would have been talking about the, book of, the books of Moses. They would have talked about God. They would have talked about the Messianic prophecies. And undoubtedly, Jews, Daniel being one of them, would have told magi, leaders in this area, people who are interested in the history of these Jewish people. There would have been an influence in this new land that they went to. Some of the people who would have been influenced by this Jewish population would have absolutely have been these magi, this group of men, this elite group. So in the story of Daniel, we answer the question of how the wise men from the east knew about the birth of the Messiah. Because these wise men from the east are descendants of people who lived in the, the area of Babylon when Daniel and exiles had come over and Jews had told them the history, had given them, had told them about the messianic promises. They knew. They knew that a king would be born. This is something, remember, 600 years before Jesus' birth. So the Magi then, 600 years before, are telling their sons who would eventually become leaders, and they're telling their sons, and the stories of, of Jewish and, and Hebrew history are being written down. And these Magi are watching the stars. That's what they do. They're astrologers, they're astronomers, they, they study the stars. And they've been watching the stars for hundreds of years. I want to look at the political layout of the land because this is really important in this story as well. One of the responsibilities of the Magi, this elite group of religious leaders who have political ties, one of their responsibilities was to crown the next king. If a new king were to be um, uh, was to ascend to the throne, you're not going to get to the throne unless you have the approval of the Magi. They're the wise men. You would want the, the wisest men in your nation to approve you as a king. So they're referred to as king makers. They certainly have a hand in bringing people to the throne. And it would have been common knowledge amongst most anyone around this area that they lived in at this time that the Magi were kingmakers of the Persian Empire, that they were involved in ascending royalty. And that detail would have been something that would have been well known to pretty much anyone in this area who was a king or a royal leader. If you're in a different nation, a neighboring nation... 
For your own protection, it's a good idea to know who your neighbors are, to know about their political system, to know who their king is, how their king got his position, and who is involved in the king's getting their position. Somebody like Herod would certainly know that the Magi are kingmakers. King Herod was not Jewish. King Herod now comes back into the territory. He is the leader when Jesus is born. So we're going to come back to our Christmas story now. King Herod was appointed king of the Jews. He didn't succeed to this position. He was appointed because at the time, now when Jesus is born, the area of of Palestine, the Palestinian area that the Jews live in, is governed by Rome. The Jews do not have their own sovereignty now. They are under the control of Rome. And Rome has appointed King Herod as the king of the Jews. King Herod, you are to just manage these people. Let them live. Let them do what they want to do. Just don't let them fight. Just like manage the land. Take care of it. You're the king. You're going to be the king of the Jews. You're not Jewish, but that's your job now. When these wise men traveled, And the Magi would have made their appearance in Jerusalem in our Christmas story. It certainly wouldn't have been anything like we see on our Christmas cards. We're going back to that nativity set that you have in your living room. We're going back to that nativity picture that you see on the Christmas cards. We're going back to what I say that that story's not quite exactly what we've seen growing up. It was not simply three guys riding on camels, carrying some boxes that they've got gifts in that they got from Hobby Lobby that they're taking to Jesus for Christmas. No, the Magi would have traveled in a massive group. This would have been a parade almost. These are high priests. These are king makers. They don't travel alone through the desert on camels. They travel with security They travel with soldiers. They travel on the best horses that are available. They were the elite of their time. They were royalty from the Persian Empire. They don't ride camels through the desert by themselves. Now this this story for them to get from the Persian Empire over to Jerusalem, this isn't a quick journey. This is a journey that's going to take them some time. Historians say they may have left about nine months before they get to the place where they're going. And they're not going to get there when Jesus is born. We're going to see that there's a time gap here in a moment. These men would have been riding on the king's horses. They would would have been riding on almost in a parade of sorts. There would have been plenty of people. There would have been a lot of pomp and circumstance when they they come into town. Soldiers in this parade. The regalia worn by the horses would have told anyone in the area where this group of people are from. These were the magi. These were the kingmakers of the Persian Empire. Royalty from another nation that has come into Jerusalem 
And simply their presence in Jerusalem would have demanded the attention of the highest royal authority in the land. In this story, at this time, it would have been King Herod. We go to Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1 reads like this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law, and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said. So King Herod, kicking it kind of in his castle, hanging out. Here comes in this parade of leaders from another nation. And by the time the the leaders of this parade get off their horses and, and King Herod goes out to meet them and, you know, maybe he invites them in for, I don't know, sweet tea and, you know, soda or something you know come on in let's grab a coke and kick it i don't don't know what he had cold that time probably didn't have anything cold but it's like hey come on in and so now you're hosting leaders from another nation and say hey um where's the king of the jews where's the where's the, the 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 new king probably would have expected the magi would have expected an answer from the current king. But the current king knows nothing about this. Like, I have no clue what you're talking about. So what does he do? Herod has to call the religious Jewish leaders. Remember, Herod's not a a Jew. He doesn't know. Jewish history isn't his thing. It's not what he does. He just rules the Jews. So the scribes, the priests, they come and they tell Herod, oh, Yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Which gives us the understanding that they didn't know that the king of the Jews had been born. When we think about who did know, kingmakers from another land knew. But the Jews themselves didn't know that Jesus was born. And we see that throughout the the ministry of Christ. He's like, my own people reject me. They don't even know who I am. But those on the outside will know who I am. His own people. His entire life. Don't even recognize him. He's born according to prophecy. And the Jewish leaders don't even recognize it. But some kingmakers from another nation recognize it and leave their nation in a parade to come and worship the newborn king. Herod's a ruthless character. He did many great things in this land. He built many buildings, new temple, but he slaughtered many of the Jews as well that were under his authority. The Jews weren't willingly under his authority, but it's the best life that they could that they can manage. So when these magi, these, these kingmakers from another nation, when they come into Jerusalem, this land that is managed by Rome, and the leaders of this parade from this other nation ask, okay, where's the, where's the king? Where's the king of the Jews? The current king is going to pause. Not only is it going to catch him off guard that he doesn't know anything about it, he's assuming that his son is going to get his position. 
It's not Rome that is coming and, and giving him rumors that there's a new king. It's somebody from another nation that's coming and telling him this. And so King Herod's asking, he's saying, by what authority do you come and, and, and ask where the new king is? How are you getting this idea? Where are you coming up with this? And they're saying, hey, we saw, we saw the star. The Jews didn't see the star. They weren't watching the skies. They weren't following a star. These are men that have been trained for generations and centuries to have a very close tie to the stars. If God put a new star up there in this sky, these men are going to find it. That's what they do. They know there's a star that is leading them. Remember, they're going off of about 700 years now of the history teaching them, telling them what to look for. They've been looking for it for so many years now. They're well-versed in astrology and astronomy, but nobody from Jerusalem saw the star. So when Herod asked the Jewish scribes to tell him, what do you guys know about this? What do you know about a king, a baby king? These visitors are saying there's a baby king. You guys know anything about this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. All right. So this conversation that Herod has with the Magi settling on the place of Bethlehem, it leads now to this general understanding. Everyone in the room knows and hones in on one specific city. It says in Matthew 2, verse number 7, it says, Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Okay, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house, and they saw the child and his mother, Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Remember, these men are well-versed in dream interpretation. For God to speak to them in a dream would have, would have made perfect sense. They're dream guys. So God is connecting with them in a way they could relate to. Follow a star. That's what they do. They're star guys. Talking to them in dreams. That's what they do. They're dream guys. Go find a king in another nation. They are king guys. It all fits. These guys from another nation. Like, what are they doing in this story? They're here because God has planned for them to be in this story for hundreds of years. It wasn't by accident that the Magi and the wise men made their way to Bethlehem. This entire narrative, it all shows how delicately and intricately God's hand has been involved in our Christmas story, in the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. None of it was by accident. 
None of it was by chance. Did God have to send angels to shepherds in our story? Did he have to do that? No. Did God have to send Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to bring Jesus into this world? No. Did God have to alert a priestly tribe of wise men from another nation, from a foreign land, to come and, and, and visit and worship the Jesus? Did he have to do that? No. Question's why? Why did God put all of this into place? It all took place because God wants to tell his story and he wants you to believe his story. And because all of these things happen that's leading up to the, to the birth of Jesus, that's leading up to these events that happen, it all happened so that you and I would believe. Even John writes about this. In John chapter 20, verse number 31, John writes, But these things are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have the life by the power in His name. It all happened for one reason, so that you could have life in the name of Jesus. It all happened for a reason. As a matter of fact, these events happened so that King Herod would believe in Jesus. These events happened so that the shepherds would believe in Jesus. These events happened so that the wise men would believe who Jesus was. These events happened so that you would believe who Jesus is. At the beginning of our sermon series five weeks ago, we talked about how precisely God has foretold the the Christmas narrative, the story that we know, how precisely this was told throughout history. And that there's so many prophecies that are fulfilled in the Christmas story. See, the wise men, they didn't have to travel through a desert with a band of soldiers. They didn't do that following a hunch. No, they were following a star that was put there by God. Shepherds didn't leave their flocks in the middle of the night and go to Bethlehem following an idea? No, they were following the directions of an angel. After the wise men left, Joseph and Mary took their newborn son and they fled to Egypt for the safety of Jesus. But Joseph didn't go to Egypt based on a gut feeling. He went rather based on what God had told him. This morning as we wrap up our Christmas series called The Message of the manger, we need to know that every detail of the life of Jesus was so perfectly orchestrated for you and me, but it doesn't lead to the manger. Ladies and gentlemen, the message of the manger leads us to the cross. It all leads to the cross on Calvary. See, the message of the manger isn't a baby boy laying in hay, kicking and laughing. It's not shepherds. As a matter of fact, if, if you believe the history and the story of the wise men, it's irrelevant if we don't look at Jesus as our Lord and Savior. The entire story is useless. Every aspect of the Christmas story is absolutely irrelevant without the cross. 
If the cross is not the standard of our salvation, then this story does not matter. None of it matters without the atoning sacrifice that comes through the blood of Jesus that He gave His life for you and I because we couldn't measure up. This morning we didn't focus at all on the gifts that the wise men brought. I know it's easy to draw a comparison in the story of the wise men between the gifts and what the gifts meant and the gifts that you and I give on Christmas Sunday. We didn't focus on any of that because it's not about the gifts. We've been focused on the message of the manger that leads to our salvation. Because without our salvation, without accepting Christ's gift, His gift to us, then Christmas is irrelevant. Without Easter, Christmas is simply Tuesday. It's just another day. It's a day, and you know somebody in your life that doesn't have Christ in their Christmas. You know a family that goes into debt every year by buying gifts for the kids year after year after year and does Christmas without Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, Christmas without Christ is simply Tuesday. But Christmas without the cross, Christmas without Easter, is just a holiday card. It's just a picture. This baby that we celebrate on Christmas is the same man who is hanging naked on a wooden torture cross that leads to our ability to spend eternity with God our Father. It all comes back to the cross. The story of the wise men, just like every other story and every other sermon that we've studied in 2019 and that we're going to look at in 2020, it's not about the camels or the gold or the frankincense or the myrrh. It's not about King Herod. It's not about the men who will interpret dreams. It's not about the dreams. It's not about the Jews in exile. It's not about Daniel or a king or about Israel or Judah. It's not about Babylon or the Persian Empire. It's not about any of this. Because the message of the manger... Many of you know exactly where I'm going with this, don't you? The message of the manger, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is all about salvation. Christmas is going to lead us to the cross. It has to lead us to the cross. Because then we're just celebrating to celebrate. This message that we have been looking at and studying for the last five weeks. And this story of the Magi and their history. It should remind us how long ago God started calling you home. 
He has been calling you home from before you were born. He has been calling you home from before Jesus was born. His plans for you go back centuries in the history that we can fathom, but it goes back even further than that. God's always wanted you home. He's got a door open for you. There's a way and a path. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way. Sometimes people like to say, well, I can get there on my own. I can be good enough. Well, that's saying I'm going to do it without Jesus. And he says there's no other way. Some people say, well, I've got this other faith and I can get there that way. And that means you're trying to do it without Jesus. And Jesus says there's no other way. Ladies and gentlemen, spending eternity with God the Father only has one way. That's through the salvation that comes from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is only one way. We don't get to determine that way. But the nice thing that God did for us is He lets us follow that way. The road is paved. It's already there. We can see now going back 25, 30 centuries, how God's hand led to some wise men from another nation coming to worship a king, and how a baby king died on a cross for you and I. That's how much God loves you. It's because He's been calling you home for so long.